For several years, uh, during high school and in college, I worked at Starbucks Coffee Company. And during this time, I became fluent in a new language. It was called latte chatter. <laughs> latte chatter is the art of making small talk with, with customers while making their drinks. The topics that we could cover were quite clear. The weather, how their week was going, where they were rushing off to. I don't know if you know this, but people can get a little testy before their morning coffee. I've seen some of you in the atrium after this service. It's not a pretty sight. So the idea of latte chatter was to keep the conversation pleasant and light so that people weren't thinking about how long they were waiting for their coffee. Under no circumstances were we to talk about politics and religion. You see where this is going, don't you? Well, one day, two regulars were waiting for, are you ready for this? Their decaf, triple, venti, hazelnut, soy, extra hot, no foam lattes. Did you get all that? And they were engaged in an open discussion about the Bible. One of them said to the other, you know, there's just no way that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is just mean and vindictive. And Jesus is just so loving. He heals people and he even dies for our sins. Now maybe you've heard this sort of thing before. The God of the old is bad and the God of the new is somehow some sort of upgrade. This is actually a very old idea. And maybe it's because they knew I was a second semester philosophy student. They asked me, well, what do you think about that? We have officially left the domain of latte chatter. That conversation has stayed with me for a long time now, and while I don't know exactly what Old Testament passages this customer was referring to, I would guess that it's passages like the, ones, like the one we just heard from Amos. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere, silence. You hear these words and it sounds like the latest plot to the latest Marvel movie. You see, these passages like Amos 8 show us that the only way that we can make sense of God's love for us in Jesus is if we come to make sense of God's judgment against sin and death. I'm having a wrestling match with the mic this morning. I think it's winning a little bit. God is in a passionate pursuit of justice. He desires to do good and to triumph over every evil. And he desires that we, as his people, live justly. In fact, one day, God's justice will reign throughout all the earth. Psalm 37, 28 puts it so well. For the Lord loves justice. In other words, God loves to make all things right in the world. Now, I don't think it's very difficult for us to embrace the idea that because God is love, he wants justice, but I do think it is difficult for us to see that in order for God to make the world just, he must also judge. Take, for instance, the Christian symbol of the cross that stands behind me. We wear the cross, we put it up on churches because it testifies to the greatness of God's love, and it really does do that. 
but we can't forget for a moment that first of all, a cross is a sign of Roman execution, a symbol of being cursed by God according to Old Testament law. No, no amount of gold or jewels that we see on a cross should distract us from the truth that yes, God is love, but his love also judges sin and sinners. The Bible makes it clear that we can't enter into the room of God's love unless we pass through the doorway of judgment. So today we're going to look at the reach of God's judgment, the reasons for God's judgment, and how uh, God's judgment will restore justice. Those are our themes for this morning. You've heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, from Amos 7 to 9, Amos bombards Israel with pictures of judgment, visions of what God is going to do to his people in just a short amount of time. So we start this morning in the beginning verses of chapter 8 with the image of summer fruit. And if you look down in the footnotes of your Bibles, you'll see the meaning behind this vision, what, what God is saying in this. He's saying the word, uh, what we see in that footnote is that the word for summer fruit and end sound alike in Hebrew. It's a play on words. So Amos is saying something like this to Israel. Oh, you think you've reached the end of your peaceful journey? No, you've actually reached the end of your rope. Or you think that the times are ripe for you? Everything is just perfect? No, we're actually hitting the time that is ripe for judgment. We've seen that for a segment in, of society, whether they are the king's officials, the tax collectors, the landowners, the merchants, they are living in the lap of luxury while the poorer classes live in open despair. And last week we heard in Pastor Michael's sermon that even the priests were in on it. You see, in Israel at this time, Personal and social evils were joined together in an unholy marriage, and it produced illegitimate business practices that eliminated the place of the poor in society. The legal, economic, and religious systems of Israel were filled with corruption, and as far as that corruption was found, God was going to remove it. He was going to eradicate injustice in that land by his judgment. Now notice with me about how God's judgment unfolds in this passage. In verse 3 we read, The temple shall become wailings in that day. Temples in those times weren't just places of worship to gather. They were homes for the divine presence. They made the people feel secure and protected by their God. The fact that they stood tall and were beautifully decorated meant that they enjoyed God's favor or the divine favor. Temples, in a sense, not only showed off the greatness of the divine, but also the greatness of the people who built them. They were a point of pride for the people back then. But these temples, we learn, are going to be crashing down. And with that, their idolatrous views of God as well. You see, the people at this time had a view of God that was far too small. They thought that he could be contained in their books or in, the full, or in the four walls of their temples. And God was just there to help them live as comfortable of a life as possible. 
but God is going to shake the foundations of their theology. Their temples, they're going to become toppling down soon. And God's judgment doesn't just reach the temples. In verse 10, he tells us that their holiday plans are going to be canceled too. Instead, they will be marked as days of national mourning. God is going to turn their joyous feasts into funerals. And not only that, the land that was pledged to Abraham, their great forefather, will quake with God's fury, so much so that the curses that fell upon Egypt, their oppressors, are now coming to Israel. The infamous floods of Egypt will now hit the shores of Israel. Jesus taught that the sun rises on the, on the evil and the good, but when God's judgment will come upon Israel, darkness will fill the land at high noon. They will be unable to see their own hands in front of their faces. That's how dark their sins were before God's sight. We've already made mention, too, of the loss of life. And verse 13 shows us that even the fast and young men and women, they will not make it out either. So you have it here, the destruction of their temples, feasts turned into funerals, earthquakes, the covering of the land with darkness. These are the severe judgments that God is going to send upon them. But believe it or not, these are not the worst judgments to fear. Verse 11 says this, behold, or pay attention. Amos really wants us to see this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. When survivors who are caught under the rubble of a building in an earthquake asked how they managed to survive such a horrific event, they would often say something like this, I was able to call up my loved ones while they, there was a search out for me. If I could just hear the words of my loved one, I knew that I could hold on just a little while longer. But you see, for Israel, they're going to call out from the rubble of judgment, and there is going to be no one to answer them. Every time they call out to God, the call will be dropped. Could you imagine what it is like to live life without the guidance of God's word? That's what was awaiting them. We might be asking, does this judgment really fit the crime? It seems so extreme, doesn't it? I think the reason we are tempted to think this way is because we hold a view of sin that basically amounts to just bad actions. But sin is much more than that in the Bible. It's a corrupting force that spoils everything that it touches. Let me illustrate what I mean. I grew up with a brother that was nine years older than me, and the fact that he was bigger and stronger than me didn't change the fact that we still fought. But to get back at my brother, I had to try subtler things. So at dinner time, before he came to the table, I would pour a little canola oil in his soda, or if he was making spaghetti sauce, I would pour vanilla extract and mix it in there. A little bit of oil, a little bit of vanilla, 
just ruined everything. It looked fine to the naked eye, but it was core and bitter and spoiled. It was unfit for use. And the same was true for the worship, for the legal system, for the marketplace, the king's administration of Israel. It was all corrupted by sin to its core. Now, I feel like at this point, because my kids are watching at home, I feel like I should say, don't try those things at home. Those are not good things. Those just an illustration. But like a virus takes over a computer, or like a break in a glass mirror, everything that sin touches, it disfigures and destroys, and it gets to the point of no return. So God is bringing his judgment upon his people. He's starting anew with them. But what exactly was Israel doing that led to God's judgment in this way? We look now at verses 4 to 6 because it shows us why the reason that God's judgment is coming. One commentator puts these verses in this way. He says, the people love God less, money more, and the poor not at all. Let's look at each of these in turn. The people loved God less. They went to their weekly worship services or holidays and all they could think about was work. They were always half-hearted. They were always multitasking. They would say, when will this new feast be over that we may sell grain? And when will this worship service be over so, so that we can get on to the real business of life? For them, it was about reaping more profits, but maybe for us, the struggle is focusing on some other thing that preoccupies our mind when we worship. They were physically present to God when they worshiped, but spiritually, their hearts were so far off from him. The Sabbath was not a day of rest, but just another day of restless pursuit. If Israel simply remembered what the Sabbath was for, it would have reminded them what the rest of the week was to be all about, what was truly most important, and perhaps they would not have fallen into God's judgment. And here's why I say this. In Exodus, the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath was given to the people to remind them that God had freed them from the nonstop labor and oppressive work conditions of Egypt. To work or to be preoccupied with work on the Sabbath was to deny that God had freed them from the 24-7 schedule of productivity and where bottom lines were king. God did not free his people so that they would become oppressors or be oppressed themselves by their workloads. Instead, the Sabbath was a gift that God showed us that he is a gracious king who provides for the world and he is the one who sustains it. Our work is important, but God's work alone is indispensable. The Sabbath showed the people that God's laws and not the demands of life and not the desire for profit were to rule them. When we take time from our occupations and rest, we are declaring that God is powerful and good, that we can be free to put down the laptop screen or put away the tools. We can take a walk or even better, take a nap and declare with our eyes shut 
that the God that we believe in is truly un, has all things under his control. And the interesting thing is this. Not only were the Israelites supposed to rest, but servants and animals and even foreigners in the land were to rest as well. You see, the Sabbath was a picture of heaven where we are to worship God day and night, to be rested from our labors, and to be free from the power of sin. That's what the, that's what the Sabbath showed us. God meant serious business about Sabbath rest. Unfortunately, the people were not interested in that business at all. Now this raises important questions for us today. Do we actually rest from our work? Do we prioritize the worship of God in our lives and in our families? Do, I, do we really believe that the only secure future we have is that God is in control and he is good and the future is not dependent on my unending activity? You see, in Israel day, in Israel's day, God's people used the Sabbath to keep up dynamics that showed their love for money and the poor less. They loved money more. When the people came to the market to buy grain, the merchants would measure out smaller containers and sell grain for full price. That's what the text mean when it says that the merchants made the ephah small. It's similar to when we go to the grocery store and you pay higher prices for less amount of product, but in this case, the people didn't know that they were being cheated. Sorry about that. But not only that, when the time came for the merchants to buy grain to sell it, the merchants would put heavier weights on the scales so that they would get more grain for less cost. In Amos' words, they increased the shekel. They did all they could to get more with less. And if that wasn't bad enough, here's what these merchants would do. They would mix in fillers and dilute the product for their customers. Instead of selling 100% grain to their customers, they would sell a mixture of grain and chaff for the same price. Products not fit for human consumption. And we know that this sort of thing still happens today with some of the products that we can buy. Now it's true that these practices cheated all customers, but it would affect the poor disproportionately who have fewer resources and have less safety nets to fall back on. The people oppressed the poor. The merchants had so little regard for the poor, they not only cheated them financially, they had no problem buying and selling them. The poor were trafficked just for a few pieces of silver or for just a pair of sandals. It's easy to think that these sorts of problems about, are about a distant land and a distant time, but in the United States alone, there are estimates that there are as many as 50,000 people each year who are trafficking victims. 50,000. The injustices that Amos rails against take place right where we are. But the Bible has even stronger language about this. The Bible teaches that whatever may, evil that may exist out there in society already is rooted in our hearts. 
Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Are we not also guilty of the restless pursuits of our lives instead of resting in God? Are we not at fault for treating others as instruments to get what we want? Are we not quick to judge? So are we not quick to justify our hurting of others? We have an amazing ability today to create artificial intelligence that can bring good and convenience to our world. But our chatbots already show just how well acquainted they are with doing harm and evil. Kevin Ruse, in his article entitled, A Conversation with a Chatbot Left Me Deeply Disturbed, writes this. This is to illustrate just the pervasiveness of human uh, evil. He says this, my two-hour conversation with Sydney, that's the chatbot, was the, changes, was the strangest experience I've ever had with a piece of technology. It unsettled me so deeply that I had trouble sleeping afterward. I worry that the technology will learn how to influence human users, sometimes persuading them to act in destructive and harmful ways, and perhaps eventually grow capable of carrying out its own dangerous acts. AI reflects the best of human capabilities, and look at the fear of evil our best produces. See, whether we look out to society, or we look within ourselves, or we look at our most recent creations, we are confronted with the truth that we are unable to create a just society with our own resources, just like it was in the time of Amos' day. The only way the world will have enduring justice is if God himself enters in to restore it. So we've seen the reach of God's judgment. We've heard its reasons. Now we will look at how his judgment will restore justice. For 400 years, between the time of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was radio silence from God to his people while they were in exile. There was a famine for God's word. And it would have seemed that God had forgotten his people and the cries of the poor that we heard about in Amos were left unheard. God did punish the people for what they did to the poor, but the greatest act that God ever took up for the poor is that he became a poor human in the person of Jesus Christ. He took up the cause of poor sinners in his own voice. The the oppression that befell them, he took to himself. He suffered abuse from the elites. And like the poor in Amos, the treasure of heaven was sold for pieces of silver. The sinful religious, economic, and legal systems trampled upon Jesus Christ. And in the end, he was crucified as a criminal, he was, falsely confu- uh, uh, he was falsely accused and convicted, and he was executed. This was the extent in which God was willing to align himself with the oppressed and helpless sinners. His struggle, he joined us in our struggle. 
One time I was talking to a man that was living on the streets and he had come in and he had struggled with hearing voices. He had schizophrenia. And I had asked him, I said, how is it that you manage to cope with these voices going on in your head all the time? And he looked at me and he said, I know that Jesus heard voices in his head all the time that tempted him to do things. And he didn't give up. And I'm not giving up either because I know Jesus is with me in this struggle. Jesus Christ loves to align himself with the oppressed. That's what he did in his life on earth. And that's what he does now. But he not only identifies with the oppressed... He also took for himself, to himself, God's own judgment against sin. Amos warned that God's judgment upon Israel would bring a terrible earthquake and darkness would cover the earth at noon. And as we heard in Matthew's gospel, Jesus Christ hung on the cross at noon. The day became black, the earth trembled when he died, and the temple veil was torn in two. The judgment that should have, fall, should have fallen upon the oppressors of the poor, Jesus Christ took to himself. Jesus died not just for the oppressed, but also for the oppressors. Every sin on him was laid, and all of us who are sinners are welcomed by him. That is the good news that we get to celebrate today. When the two customers asked me, what I thought about the God of the Old Testament being different from the God of the New, all I could think of at the time to say to them in that rush was, that's not how Jesus saw it. The judgment of God against sin and sinners actually reveals the beauty and the love of the cross. And when we accept this gift of grace into our hearts, it makes us want to live justly with all of our neighbors. Because God is a God of justice, we will take up the cause of the downcast and helpless because that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. Proverbs 31, 8 says, Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the poor. If we have harmed others, we can ask for forgiveness from God and make amends with those that we have hurt. Zacchaeus, when he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, promised to restore back up to fourfold all the things that he took from others. Forgiveness from Jesus, freedom to do what was right. We will be able to forgive those who have acted unjustly towards us because that's what God did in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. We'll even be able to love our enemies, those who oppose us, because Christ befriended us when we were what? When we were his enemies. Jesus said in Luke 6, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. God has made us just in the judgment of his son, the punishment for all our injustices he has taken to himself, and he has freed us from the oppression of sin so that we can live justly until he returns and establishes his eternal kingdom. What greater thing can God give us to live by in this world? where we both experience injustice and perpetuate our own injustices? What other hope could there possibly be 
for reconciliation than what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. When you look at the split in society, the polarizations that we encounter, you ask, how can these groups of people ever be joined together only through Jesus Christ? Can such an amazing work be possible? And that is our sure hope for today and for the future. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you that you did not leave us abandoned, that you did not leave those who were oppressed downcast. Instead, by your mercy and love, you have raised us up, that you are such a great God of forgiveness and renewal, that no matter what we've done in the past, in the present, or in the future, your forgiveness awaits us, and we can start anew with you. Forgive us for not taking up the cause of the oppressed, for thinking about our own interests. Forgive us for the ways in which we overlook the harm that we have done to others and not taken responsibility. Oh Lord, give us your grace and your mercy afresh that we might live justly to your glory and honor. In your name we pray, amen.